Good morning. Please turn to your Bibles to Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. As we come to this passage, that last song really summarizes what I hope that we see. I hope we see our Savior Christ, see his glory, and see what he has done for us. My name is Peter Conrad. Some of you know me, some of you may not. Um, I work overseas. My wife, Keziah, you probably know more than me. Uh, she was part of this church for quite a number of years through college at Shadron State and then was involved in many ministries here before she went overseas where I met her. And the Lord has brought us here for a brief time. Um, Praise God, we're having a child, and so we'll be here for five or six months. And so graciously, I was asked to, to preach, and I appreciate that invitation. So I work in the Middle East, uh, both of us do, and we teach English, and we'll touch, talk more about that probably at another time. Um, but we're involved in discipleship and evangelism and would love to tell you stories about that. That's just a little background, so you know a little bit of who I am. Around six years ago, I got on a plane and traveled to Mongolia. This was before I went to the Middle East. My first couple weeks and months were difficult as I adjusted to new surroundings, new routines, new ways of life. In those first couple of weeks, I really wondered, had I done the right thing? Over the years, I've gone through quite a number of transitions. I went to Uganda, to China, to Mongolia, and most recently the Middle East. What I have learned about transitions is that it's really easy to lose focus. It's really easy for small things to become big things. I think many of us here are going through transitions even now. My wife and I are transitioning to our first child. That's a transition uh, for our family life. Um, College students are transitioning, right, to a new town. So those of you who are here going to Shadron, it's a whole new way of life that you're about to really get into. For the church here, you're transitioning to a new pastor. We praise God for that. And all these different ways in which we experience transition My hope is to encourage you in the time we have today. Don't let this time of transition influencing you to lose focus on what's truly important. Don't let smaller things cloud your unity. Don't let the small things grow in your minds to become big things. But let's keep our focus on the one who establishes us. Christ, our Savior. In Romans 16, 25 to 27, Paul grounds our unity in the glory of God through the revelation of Christ. Before we read this passage, let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We come to you because we need you. 
Father, we, we are broken people. We come with our, our frustrations throughout the week. We come with sins that we've committed throughout the week. We come, Father, not, not to appear like we're so good, but we come, Father, because we want to see Christ. So, Father, I pray that as we, as we read Romans 16, 25, 27, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might, might see your truths? Would you open our hearts that we might understand your word? And, Father, I beg of you, May you work through my words in my heart. That I would say what is true, what is right. That which would build up and courage and strengthen. May we all see Christ. And see his beauty. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's read Romans sixteen twenty five to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul is concluding the book of Romans. And he concludes the book of Romans in three verses. Now just to put you at ease, we're not going to summarize the whole book of Romans this morning. In case you were worried about that. But I think what Paul is giving us here is he's giving us a succinct and short summary of the main point. What was Paul trying to get at from Romans 1 to Romans 16? What was he really trying to impress upon the hearts of the people that he was sending this message to? And I think these verses really get at the heart of Paul's message. Not just in Romans, but really in all his epistles. This was his aim. You'll notice that he concludes his aim as pointing to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Paul's aim of of everything he wrote was the glory of God through Jesus Christ. You can summarize everything Paul wrote in that one sentence. But thankfully, Paul gives us a little bit more of a summary in the preceding verses. So I want us to look at these verses, and we'll see two main points, points of emphasis that Paul makes. First, the church is established by the power of God. That'll be our first point. The church is established by the power of God. The second, the church is established according to the preaching of the gospel of Christ from the fullness of the Bible. So first, the church is established by the power of God. We see that right there, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. That word strengthen is used in various contexts throughout the New Testament. In one context that it's used, it's used of Jesus as he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So in the Gospels, there comes this point in Jesus' ministry where he resolutely 
sets his face with an unshakable purpose to go to the cross. That unshakable purpose is this word for established that's used here in Romans 16. Well, it's translated strength in here. It's translated established in, in other places as well. I think what the what word is getting at is that Paul is talking about an unshakable decision, an unshakable intention that will establish the church. It's like an emphatic strengthening. A firm resolve that God will establish his church. And he'll establish it by his power. You see that you there, not to him who is able to strengthen you. That you is plural. I know in English it's hard to see because you is you. Whether it's singular or plural, you're going to get you every time, right? But it's actually a plural you. Why is that significant? Well, it tells us what, who Paul is talking to. We have a tendency to individualize verses sometimes. And we can see that you as, oh, this is God strengthening me personally. Now, thankfully, it's true. God does strengthen you and me personally. He's a personal God. We're not denying that. But in this particular passage, Paul's not talking about a personal strengthening. Paul's talking about a corporate strengthening. We see this throughout the context of Romans 16. In verse 4, Paul's talking about different churches. He talks about the churches of the Gentiles in verse 4. He talks about the church in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. In verse 16, he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. So it's very clear throughout the chapter of Romans 16 that Paul is talking to the church. Paul is giving us the blueprint for how God will establish and is establishing his church. In Acts 2.23, thinking, thinking of this definite purpose of strengthening, in Acts 2.23, Peter's giving a sermon, and you'll see there at the screen. And in this sermon, as Peter is explaining the gospel, Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So as Peter is really indicting Israel, all the people there, for for crucifying Jesus, he makes a note that it wasn't really their idea. <laughs> yes, you killed him, but you killed him according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan was it to send Jesus to the cross? It really wasn't the people during Jesus' time. It was the plan of God from before. Foreknowledge, before. God didn't make it up as he went along. God had an intention all the way from before creation, an intention to send Jesus with a definite plan. We call that the plan of redemption, right? God's plan to redeem people for his name. And so we see the plan of God is to establish his church, to strengthen his church. Well, how does he do that? Well, before we get to how he does that, let's think about that a little bit for how, how does it, how do we respond to that? To the fact that God is establishing his church by his power. I think one response is, in form of a question, are you part of God's church? Are you part of God's church? Now, I'm assuming you, you are sitting here, so most of you would, I would assume would say yes. And praise God, praise God for that. 
There are some listening who may, be, who may not be part of a church, who may have, have, have been slowly, just incrementally over the years, sucked into this idea that we can do church by ourselves at home, and we can just zoom it in. Nothing wrong. If there, there's a need to zoom it in, that's fine. But in the process of time, some of us have gotten this idea that we can do individual church. We can listen to our favorite pastor read our Bible, have our own little worship ceremony in our home, and we don't have to actually go and actually meet and live and serve with the church. My friends, if that's you, I would, I would earnestly call you to, to think about the church of Jesus Christ. We don't get that idea from the Bible. Read through the New Testament. You don't get a private church in the New Testament. The church is a corporate body. It's a body of people. In fact, it's literally called the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 12, there's all sorts of different, the analogy of body, Paul goes into detail on. As was noted this morning, we're welcomed into something, right? Jesus welcomes into a body of believers. So do you live and work as a functional body part? Another question to ask ourselves. We're here, but are we functioning as a part of, an actual part of it. So for those who, who don't want to be part of church or who just come to church and don't do a whole lot, my question for you is, and again, not that you have to do everything, but if you're really wondering, like, what is this church thing and how do I do it? Well, well, well to, to not live and work through the church as a functional body part, it's as if you have an arm that's been detached from the body eventually that arm is going to shrivel and die, right? If you have an arm that's not attached to the bloodstream, the bloodstream gives it the power and the life. It cannot sustain its life. So, friends, God put us in a church, and who's the head of the church? Who's the lifeblood of the church? Jesus Christ. So unless we're attached to Jesus Christ, we, we, we run the risk of shriveling and dying. God put us in a body. He gave us different body parts, different functions, and we should serve in that. That's Paul's point. He's establishing a church. He's not establishing a group of individuals. Do you serve the church in the power through the power of God? And there are some of us who loved, who are really are serving well, and praise God. We also have to watch ourselves. Are we doing it in our own strength or by the power of God? Because it is God who is able to establish you. So friends, no matter where you are and how you think about church, we all have somewhere to grow in this. If you're thinking about if you should be a part of the church, Romans 16 says you should. If you think, well, how much should I be involved? Romans 16 says should be involved. And if you're, you're serving and you're working and you're involved, Romans 16 says do that in the power of Christ depending on God's power working through you. The church is established by the power of God. Second, the church is established according to the preaching of the gospel from the fullness of the Bible. Paul then gives us the how-to. How, well, how is the church established? It's established according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That word according to has the idea of conformity to a standard. So what is the standard by which God establishes 
his church. Well, the standard is the preaching of the gospel of Christ. You may wonder, why does Paul say my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ? Are we talking about two different gospels? Is that and intended to mean one thing and then another thing? You could read it that way. I would encourage you not to for several reasons. First, that word and can have the idea of a further point of clarification. So for example, Paul is saying, my gospel, and let me clarify that, even the preaching of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's emphatic. It's a way of showing emphasis that my gospel is in fact not just my gospel, Paul is saying, but it is in fact the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now don't take my word for it because the Bible says it explicitly. In Galatians 1, 11 to 12, Paul says this about his gospel. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it perfectly clear here. And this wasn't his personal gospel that he dreamed up. This was, in fact, given to him, not from other people, but directly through a revelation of Jesus Christ personally. This is important for us to take a second to think about. Because 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4 gives us a warning. A warning from Paul about the necessity of understanding who Jesus really is. Paul says, But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we, we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I think we have to note that Paul is not talking to a group of unbelievers when he makes this statement. When I first read it, I was like, of course, I I work in the Middle East. They literally preach a different Christ. They preach a Christ who was not God. They preach a Christ who didn't die. They preach a Christ who didn't rise again. That is directly opposite of how the Bible describes who Christ is. But interestingly enough, Paul is not talking to a group of unbelievers or a culture of unbelievers, Paul's saying this to the church of Corinth, right? Which leads me to think that even as believers who are gathered together as a church, that we have the potential to drift away and to have an incorrect understanding of who Christ is. This isn't just theory. This is reality. The reality is that people in churches drift away and begin to serve different Christs. And so Paul warns, don't proclaim a different Jesus. Don't receive a different spirit. There are different spirits, right? Just because we call something the Spirit of God, or say something happened because of the Spirit of God, doesn't make it from the Spirit of God. We can be deceived. We can accept a different gospel if we're not careful 
if we're not careful. If we don't know the Bible well, we can be deceived. We can be led astray. So my friends, how are we not led astray? How are we not deceived? How do we know who the true Christ is? And we praise God that he has not left us in the dark. He has shown, he has revealed who the, tr- who the true Christ is. And so Paul continues. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The gospel preaching of Jesus is based on the revelation of the mystery that Jesus is the Christ of the Old Testament. This is why it's so important that we understand and know the Old Testament. Because if we want to know who Jesus is, Jesus was first revealed in the Old Testament. Well, how, how was that, you might ask? If you read through the Old Testament, you find a lot of laws about sacrifices and lots of laws in general, right? You find lots of genealogies. You find lots of hard-to-understand prophecies. And you may say, the Old Testament is really difficult to understand. And friends, you're not wrong, right? Paul just says here, it's a mystery, a mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So if you come to the Old Testament, you're like, I just can't understand it. I'm struggling here. Don't stop. That's not terrible. You should struggle with it at first because there are things hidden there. There are things to be revealed. But we must understand something about a mystery. A mystery is not something you will never be able to understand. Now, we use it that way, right? When we talk about doctrines, we're like, oh, it's a mystery. <laughs> I, I, I just can't understand it. That's not what Paul's saying here. <laughs> Paul's not saying, oh, it's a mystery as in, oh, you, you won't be able to understand it. A mystery in the Bible is something that was not previously, not previously known, but is now revealed. It's something that was hidden, but, but will be made known. Now, not everything is made known right away. So some things are still in the future to be made known. But God does not write things to you just to confuse you and leave you in a mystery. God reveals the very thing that he hid. So how does God reveal Christ through the Old Testament? How does he reveal what was hidden? We're going to quickly walk through Uh, Three ways in which we see Christ revealed that are pretty dominant throughout the Old Testament. There are many other other ways. We're just going to see one briefly to get an idea of what Paul is talking about here. Paul uses the term Christ, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we, we see that word Christ. I don't know what comes to your mind. But sometimes it's almost like it's like a last name. You know, Jesus is the first name. Christ is the last name. Jesus Christ. That's probably not true, right? (laughs) Christ has a specific meaning when Paul is using it here. Christ means anointed one. So 
What does that mean? Who's been anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three offices that had anointing, right? The prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed. The kings were anointed. So the anointed ones of the Old Testament were the prophet, priest, and kings. And interestingly, Jesus is directly referenced as the prophet, priest, and king, right? Because he's the anointed one. He fulfills the anointed offices of the Old Testament. So we see in the Old Testament that Jesus is the greater prophet. Let's see how that works. Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19, we have this prophecy that seems a little bit mysterious, right? I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So talking to Moses, God is going to raise up a prophet who is like Moses. Not exactly Moses, but like Moses. And this prophet, he will tell them everything I command him. Notice that. Everything I command him. Now, how is that like Moses, but not like Moses? If you know the history of Moses, right? Did Moses do everything God said to do exactly the way God said to do it? No. That's why he didn't go to the promised land, right? He was left on the mountain looking at the promised land, but he couldn't actually go into the promised land because he broke faith with the Lord. He didn't do it exactly right. So we're not looking for someone like Moses who doesn't do it exactly right. We're looking for someone greater than Moses. So you go to the New Testament, Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Well, how is Christ greater than Moses? Well, Jesus is not merely a faithful human, but he has always been the son of God, right? The son of God came down to earth, added to himself a human nature. This is very different than Moses' birth. Moses had a naturally human birth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, in John 1, 1 to 14, John explains more about the, how Jesus is so different than Moses. He wasn't, talking, he wasn't comparing with Moses, but he was revealing more about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is greater than Moses because unlike, because he, Moses could speak the words of God, but Jesus is the word of God, right? Jesus is greater because he's not merely a human, but he's the only son from the father. So Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He's also the son of God. Second, Jesus is the greater priest. In 1 Samuel 2, 35, we have another prophecy. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house. So see that I will raise up? In all the three passages we're going to look at, there's an intentional phrase, I will raise up. Cluing us in that this is something important for us to understand. God is going to raise up a faithful high priest. And so Hebrews 3, 1 to 2 says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. 
in the context of 1 Samuel 2, they were not faithful priests. This prophecy in 1 Samuel 2 is given to Eli, given to Samuel, but it was in the time of Eli. And Eli was not a faithful priest because he allowed his sons to do wicked things openly in front of all of Israel to defile the priesthood. And so God comes to Samuel and says, I'm going to punish Eli, his sons. And in fact, their, their sin is so great, I'm going to end the priesthood. It's going to be gone. But in that same delivering of judgment on the priesthood, this is how God likes to do things, right? He delivers judgment, but then he gives hope. In the judgment of the priesthood, he gives the hope that there will be another priest who will be faithful. And that priest is Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many remain righteous. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, Israel suffered from the same problem that Adam did. The priesthood had the same problem that Adam had. Well, they were disobedient. But the high priest doesn't have that problem. Because Jesus lived the obedient life that Adam failed to live, Jesus can credit righteousness to those who believe. Jesus earned a righteousness that Adam, Israel, nor us could ever earn. He's the obedient high priest. And then he died. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he lived the perfect life, the obedient life, and then he went to the cross. Remember, he set his face with this determination, this firm resolve to go to the cross. Why? For our sins. He died in our place, taking our sins on himself. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ so we could have peace with God. Remember the high priest? That's what he did. He offered sacrifices, and these sacrifices symbolized, pictured, how God was going to pour out his wrath on the sacrifice. The lamb was slaughtered. Why? A picture of Christ, the slaughtered lamb of God. So the whole picture of the temple is a picture of what Christ would in fact do. And that's what he in fact did on the cross. He took the wrath of God. He bore the sin of man. So we could be united to a holy God. So Jesus is the greater priest. And finally, Jesus is the greater king. He didn't stay dead, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus conquered death so that we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus rose again in victory. He crushed the head of the serpent. He ended the reign of sin and death by conquering and defeating that last enemy, death. But what did Christ do in his resurrection? Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we leave it right there. We leave it at the resurrection. But what did Christ do after he, after he resurrected? Well, the gospel continues in Jesus's ascension to the throne of God. Hebrews 1, 3, for Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see that Jesus as the greater king also comes from the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel seven twelve to 14, 
God says, I will raise up for your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus is the promised king. And what would this king do? He would establish the throne of God. In Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ died to make purification, to cleanse us. He rose again, and he entered into the heavenly realm. And he sat on the throne of God. The good news is that not only that Christ made a way to be in relationship with God, but that he ascended the throne as the believer's priest, king, representative. We needed a new representative, right? Adam totally failed. The Old Testament is clear. Adam failed. Every representative in the Old Testament failed, whether it's Adam, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Israel, any, all the representative figures are shown to clearly fail in their attempt at representing humanity to God. But Christ does not fail in his representing us to God. Because he is the greater prophet, priest, and king. And the gospel is the good news about his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. You see, that is the true Christ. That is the true gospel. And that's a gospel that was hidden in the Old Testament through symbols sacrifices, right? The temple. It was hidden through figures, the prophet, the priest, and the king. But it's there. It's hidden, not, not because it couldn't be figured out, but it's hidden because the intent of, of, of God was to reveal Christ through the New Testament. So we've been given 66 books. And the first 39 we call the Old Testament, and they point to this Christ who would come. And the last 27 reveal who this Christ is. But you need both Testaments to understand who he is. To understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul emphasizes that the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ is not only the revelation of what was hidden, but it is preached according to the command of God. You notice that here in Romans 16? The preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. And we, we talked about what that meant. And then see the other according to? According to the command of the eternal God. See those two according to phrases? They, they help us understand the, the point and structure of this passage. The preaching of Jesus Christ is based on the revelation of the mystery, and the revelation of the mystery is based on the command of God. There's a direct progression that is happening here. And this command of God is to make Jesus known to all nations, right? We saw that right before the command. The prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That word made known known is to announce, to make known publicly or explicitly. 
This is the emphasis of this passage. It's not just that we understand Christ, though we should and we need to. We can't preach what we, what we don't understand. So first, we have to understand who the real Christ is, how he's been revealed. And then second, we're called by the command of God to proclaim, to publicly announce who that Christ is. And so Paul appropriately uses the word preaching. Because the church is established through preaching. This is why the preaching ministry is so important. Because we've not been called just to sit back and everybody hear what the Spirit's saying to us individually. God has established the preaching ministry because it's a, it's a way in which he establishes the church. It's, a, it's vital to the health and the strengthening of the church. The word preach has the idea of to proclaim the good news as a spokesperson commissioned by God with a divine message about the person and work of Jesus, the Christ. So preaching is always linked directly to the preaching of Jesus Christ. True preaching is gospel preaching that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if somebody is, is preaching, but not preaching Jesus Christ, they're not doing, they're not preaching, friends. Maybe they're having a lecture, or maybe they're, they're having a TED Talk. But friends, preaching, biblically, is always centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And preaching requires verbal proclamation, right? There's this quote that has been tossed around at points by a medieval monk um, who said, Preach the gospel... If necessary, use words. Now, I understand why he said that to some extent. I think he's trying to get at our life needs to match what we say. And that is definitely true. But that's not a good way of saying that. Because if we don't actually use words, we can't actually ever preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel requires that we open our mouths. It requires a communication of the message. And this has always been the truth, always been the truth, that God has required that we preach the gospel to all nations. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God speaking to Abraham, God commanding Abraham, and Romans earlier refers to this as, as, as the gospel. The gospel being proclaimed to Abraham. Well, the gospel being proclaimed to Abraham was the gospel that was meant to bless all nations, right? And so from the very beginning pages of scripture, God has always commanded his people to bless others through the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is not new. This is not like, oh, Paul just kind of thinks that preaching is a good idea and that we should probably tell people about the gospel. Friends, it's, it's always been an emphasis of God to preach the gospel to all nations. And so in Isaiah 56, 6 to 8, Isaiah prophesies, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is a bit of an indictment on Israel, because remember, Israel was called the kingdom of priests. In Exodus 19, God tells Israel, you're to be a kingdom of priests. Well, if you read throughout Israel's history, they're not very good at that. They didn't really ever want to reach out to the nations. There are glimpses of that happening, but it's really by far the minority of time. 
They, they rarely ever really get into that. You see it in David's time a little bit as the kingdom of David is peaking. You see the queen of Sheba coming from a long distance away to hear about the, the wisdom of Solomon. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, right? Kicking and screaming, he, he's driven to Nineveh. He finally proclaims a message that he doesn't want to proclaim. And then he's sad that they repent. <laughs> Not exactly the eager uh, desire to see the nations come to Christ. Instead, it was the opposite most of the time. And yet, in the midst of this, in Isaiah 56, 6 to 8, God says, this is, this is going to not continue. God will preach his gospel to the nations, and the nations will hear. And so Paul continues in Isaiah 56, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And you might ask, that's a bit confusing. A lot of gathering going on. The outcasts of Israel... Who are the, those who haven't been gathered? Well, in John eleven fifty to 52, Jesus uses similar language. Um, well, John records a prophecy about Jesus. Ironically, it's the high priest who's giving this prophecy, not knowing exactly what it means. But it's prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, the whole point of the Old Testament was getting to this necessity of preaching the gospel to all nations because God all along had planned that all nations would come and be collected into his one people of God. This was always the plan of God, to bring the nations into relationship with him. And so he commands it right in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice that making disciple of all nations. The command of God is to make Jesus known to all nations. But what does that mean? It means to bring about the obedience of faith. You see, we're not called just to walk around just saying things to the air. Sometimes, I'm not going to critique different methods. If you're preaching Jesus, praise God, right? Praise God you're preaching Jesus. I just want to emphasize here that the point of preaching Jesus is to make disciples. Evangelism is necessary. Please evangelize. But also, please don't stop with evangelizing. Because what we've been called to do is to make disciples of all nations. And according to Matthew 28, that requires baptism and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, this is what Paul exemplified in his ministry. When Paul preached the gospel, he went to people, he followed up with people, he went back two, three times, he wrote letters. Paul kept in communication. Paul didn't just speak the gospel, walk away, and and leave that person with with no ability to follow up or, or who to talk to. So friends, when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, make sure people can go somewhere. They may reject the message at first, that's fine, but leave them with something, the church address, your number, something, or someone who can continue to share Christ with them. We're called to make disciples of all nations. In 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, 
Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to preach. We're called to proclaim Jesus Christ. My question for you is, are you sitting under the preaching of Christ? Are you sitting under the regular preaching of Christ? Are you going to a church where the Bible is preached? Not just referred to, not just they got their one text, and then they're talking about who knows what the rest of the time. Not they have their idea, and so they, they really are just talking their idea, and at times, Scripture just is really consistent with, with, with what they're trying to say. But friends, be at a church where Christ is preached faithfully week in and week out, and the Word of God is the central message. And where the preacher is trying, under the power of the Holy Spirit, to be consistent with the Word of God. Are you preaching Christ to the nations from the whole of God's word? Friends, we don't have to go to the Middle East or anywhere else to proclaim gospel to the nations. We're called to go where we are. So my question to you is, are you preaching Christ? And are you preaching Christ from the whole of God's word? Can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Do you know the message of Christ? From the Old Testament. My friends, sometimes we stick exclusively to the New Testament thinking, well, the Gospels, you know, they're the words of Jesus Christ. And if you have some Bibles that put them in red, I'm going to stick to the red words of Jesus. Let's not be misled here, friends. They're all the words of Jesus, right? Jesus is the word of God. There are no more important words of Jesus and less important words of Jesus. They're all words of Jesus. And so as you preach the gospel, don't be content just to to read through Mark. If you do read through Mark, you're going to have a lot of explanations that need to go back to your Old Testament, right? Who's the Son of Man? The New Testament is not going to tell you who the Son of Man is. It's just going to talk about the Son of Man. In fact, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. But he never explains, in the New Testament, he never explains what that means. Why? That's explained in the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't take a lot of time re-explaining something that's already been talked about. He often just refers to himself as the fulfillment, right? He says, I am he. Well, what does that mean? Well, you've got to know Exodus in the context of, of how God said, I am he, behind that burning bush. Jesus doesn't do a lot of unpacking the Old Testament narrative. He does a lot of, I am the revelation, right? Because he expects us to know what, what's, what's in the Old Testament. So as you preach Christ, I encourage you, Do the work of understanding what these words mean from the Old Testament so you can prove to people who Jesus is and why it matters so much that we know him. And are you preaching Christ to the nations in order to make disciples for Christ? Are we disciple makers? And are we learning how to do that? The nations know Christ through the preaching of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is the preaching of Christ from the Old Testament through the New Testament that holds promise of bringing about the obedience of faith. Friends, the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ establishes us in the faith. That, in fact, is Paul's point. 
This gospel brings God glory through the revelation of his son as the author and finisher of our faith, explained and exemplified in the Old Testament. A true understanding of the New Testament as the revelation of the Old Testament will establish the church in the faith, grow the church in obedience to Christ, and bring God glory through the revealed person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul begins, now to him who is able to strengthen you. And he ends, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you have made a plan. That plan is centered in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth. Son of God, son of David. Taking on a a human body and a human nature. Earning the obedience living that life of obedience we could never live, dying in our place, taking our sin on yourself, rising again in victory over sin and death, entering into the presence of God in the heavens and sitting on the throne of God. What a gospel, Jesus Christ. You have freed us. You call us to faith in you, Father. I pray, bring faith to our hearts. To those who have yet to believe in you, Father, awaken their heart, I pray, and bring faith to their soul. And for those of us who you have given faith to and you've opened our eyes, Father, grow us in your word, we pray. Establish us as your church. Strengthen us through the preaching of your word. Cause your word to be preached regularly. And cause Christ to be put before us regularly. Holy Spirit, empower us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. That you might be glorified. It's the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ.